listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. Well, good morning again, and welcome back to our Broken Heroes sermon series. We've been going through this for a number of months now, and uh, we only have a few more weeks left. I was thinking, I was having a conversation with somebody this last week, and saying, man, we could keep this going for, for years, because there's just character after character, example after example of these people in Scripture that God chooses to use, to redeem, not because of themselves, but in spite of themselves, and that gives us hope too. Well, today we're talking about Rebecca, Rebecca's manipulation. Now, Rebecca is an interesting character because when you compare her to her mother-in-law, Sarah, or her daughter, Rachel, she doesn't get nearly as much airtime in the Bible. But here's what we do know about Rebecca. Rebecca was from Ur of the Chaldees. This is Abraham's original homeland. So this is where God originally called Abraham from, you'll remember, which is hundreds of miles uh, east of where they eventually settled in the land of Canaan. So this would have been in, in modern-day Iraq. And in this, this area, or they did this thing where they worshipped uh, not the true God, but they, they worshipped the moon god. Sin was the god's name, not to be confused with actual sin in the Bible, but that just happened to be the god's name. And so they worshipped this, this moon god. They had these uh, massive temples, in fact, called ziggurats. You can still see some of them are, are around to this very day. And so this is where Rebecca came from. This was her, her family home. She was the daughter of Bethuel, Abraham's nephew, so she was Isaac's first cousin once removed. Rebecca is described in the Bible as physically beautiful. She was strong and assertive. She was also barren for 20 years until God interceded and she became pregnant with twins, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was her favorite, and Esau was Isaac's favorite. We've seen this theme of favoritism play out throughout a number of different generations. I know nobody here has their favorite kids, but besides you, uh, some of these ones did, and it happens again and again. Esau was a hunter, an outdoorsman, right? So Esau probably had some chest hair, and he drove John Deere tractors or farm all tractors. Whatever makes you feel better about yourself, I guess. Um, and Jacob stayed indoors, and he helped in the tents. So it makes sense that Jacob and his mom, Rebecca, developed this really close relationship. So fast forward a few years. Jacob is there on his deathbed, and it comes time for him to give his blessing. Typically, this would go to the firstborn. That was the way that it worked. And that's where our text picks up this morning with Rebecca hatching a plot to help her son Jacob steal the birthright from Esau. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 27. It's a little bit longer of a passage, verses 1 through 23. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me now. Otherwise, I'll ask you to rise for the reading of God's Word. Genesis 27, beginning right at verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. 
He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before, you, before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies." But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice, and go, bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food in the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near, that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac his father, who felt him, and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your word to us this morning. I pray that you would do your work upon each person here, God, that you would work in our hearts and our minds to peel back the layers that are there, the layers that maybe we don't even know are there, God, callousness or, or layers of self-deception, whatever it builds up over these years. God, I pray that, that you would peel those back so that you can bring healing to them because we need it today. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So here's how one author describes Rebecca. I thought this was a good description. It says, she is the most clever and authoritative of the matriarchs. When we're talking about matriarchs, patriarch period would have been Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we're talking about their wives. So it says, she is the most authoritative, excuse me, clever and authoritative of the matriarchs, and yet she epitomizes womanly beauty and virtue in her conduct, in her energetic speech, in her thoughtful courtesy, and in her self-assurance. So when we look back on Rebecca's life, there's a lot to be admired there. Her grit, right, and her toughness, and her perseverance. She left her homeland. That's no small thing. She made a move hundreds of miles away. They didn't have a minivan they can get in and, and head home on the weekends, right? So she left 
and lived in this, this new area where she had never lived before, along leaving, with, leaving all of her possessions and her family behind. And you'll remember the, the encounter. We're not going to read through it today, but you remember the encounter where Abraham sends his servant to find a wife for Isaac. And there's Rebecca watering the camels. And then when the marriage proposal comes, he responds pretty much immediately. So we have this example of her. She also persevered through an immense amount of suffering, 20, 20 years of barrenness, 20 years of not being able to become pregnant. Now, in our day and age, that's hard enough, but in that day and age, your value as a woman was largely determined by how big your family was. So she bore shame, didn't she? She bore shame for a long period of time. And eventually God intervened and she became pregnant with these twins, Jacob and Esau. And do you remember what, what was happening in her womb with these, these two boys as she was pregnant with twins? They were wrestling, right? They were wrestling. Like, even before they were born, the sibling rivalry, man, it's hitting hard, isn't it? And when this happened, she did not pray to the moon god Sin that she had grown up with, but to Yahweh, the true God. And what did God say? Genesis 25, 23. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. The older shall serve the younger. Esau is going to serve Jacob. This is a complete reversal of the norms and of the expectations of the time. The older was always the one who, who had the rights. They got a double portion of the inheritance. But God says, no, no, the, the older is going to serve the younger. This is important. So this is God's promise that Jacob is going to rule over Esau. So with that in mind, imagine Rebekah there in the tent when this whole incident that we read about, the stealing of the birthright, happens. She overhears the conversation in the other room, right? Her husband telling Esau that he is going to get the birthright. Not Jacob, like God had told her. So what does she do? She intervenes, understandably, right? But rather than allowing God's plan to unfold, she takes matters into her own hands and hatches this whole conspiracy for Jacob to steal the blessing by tricking his dad into believing that he was his older brother. By the way, side note, if you're taking notes, you want to write this down. How hairy do you have to be that to trick your dad into believing you are your brother, you have to put goat skin on your arms? These are the questions that keep your pastor up at night, just so you know. That says something about me, probably also something about you too. Um, but that's the real puzzler here. Anyway, Rebecca's plot, she has this whole scheme. It ends up being successful. Jacob receives his father's blessing. He, not Esau, ends up becoming the father of all the Israelites, right? Jacob's name gets changed to Israel. And then you have the 12 tribes of Israel. And from those 12 tribes, you get the tribe of Judah. Then after Judah, of course, we get King David who comes from that line. Eventually, the Messiah, Jesus. Now, God's purposes were fulfilled here, but man, it was messy, wasn't it? This was messed up. With Rebecca and Jacob's actions, there was wickedness, secrecy, deception, manipulation. 
And we only read part of the story due to time constraints, but you can keep reading and you'll see, you'll see that for years down the road, this affects the family. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, he says it like this. He makes this observation. I think this is helpful. He says, the purposes of God are tangled in a web of self-interest and self-seeking. Isn't that true? We see that in our story here today. The temptation to manipulate the situation was just too much for Rebecca to take. You know, in her mind, God's plan just needs this extra little push from her. His promise alone was insufficient. She didn't fully trust it and instead relied on her own efforts. See, Rebecca, like us, is a sinner, guilty of condemnation through her own actions. She secretly listens through the tent flap rather than talking to her husband directly. She takes advantage of a blind man, which is specifically warned against in the Old Testament. She lied, and she even used God's name to validate her wrongdoing. This is some, some pretty serious stuff. The temptation to manipulate is all too real, isn't it? Whether it's stealing a birthright or subtly trying to control our kids to cover up our own insecurities or giving someone the cold shoulder until they give us what we want or using emotional manipulation to get our spouse to cave in. Other times, this temptation toward manipulation rears its head in some pretty unexpected places. In the fall of 2022, the fishing world was rocked by a cheating scandal. It happened at the Lake Erie Walleye Trail Tournament. Jason Fisher, the director of the tournament, yes, that's his, his real name, Jason Fisher, uh, became suspicious when the five fish he estimated to be about four pounds each, or 20 pounds in total, weighed in at about 34 pounds. Mr. Fisher inspected one of the walleyes and felt a hard object in its stomach that seemed unnatural. Well, it's not like they're eating rocks, he said. He grabbed a knife and sliced open the fish. As Jacob Runyon, one member of the two-person team that presented it for weighing, looked on, the next moments rocked the fishing competition world. We've got weights in fish, Mr. Fisher shouted, holding up an egg-sized lead ball he plucked from the fish. Mr. Runyon and his teammates would have finished in first place and scored a prize of about 30 grand. But they were disqualified after the lead ball and subsequently several others were discovered in the fish. Cheating in competitive fishing is more common than people think. There are many ways to cheat. Have friends deliver pre-caught fish to them, fish in prohibited areas. I didn't know all this. Put fish in cages before the competition, stuff them with ice, adding heft during the weigh-in that melts and leaves no evidence. In some of these tournaments, ounces can mean tens or hundreds or thousands of dollars. The temptation to manipulate was just too great to resist. Now, let's do this. Let's provide a definition for manipulation. What does manipulation mean? Well, for our purposes today, we're going to define it as using others for our own ends. Manipulation really is using others for our own ends. 
And there are two problems with this. There's one that's, problem number one is vertical. That means in our relationship with God. Problem number two is horizontally in our relationship with other people. Okay, so, so problem number one, vertically, with God. What's the problem here? Well, when we manipulate, we try to be God. We try to play God. There's this characteristic of God that we read in the Bible. We find it throughout all of Scripture. God's sovereignty. God's omnipotence. God has all of these characteristics, these aspects that define Him. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He is all-present. This one in particular, omnipotence. God is all-powerful. That's just another fancy way of saying that He controls everything. Everything that, that happens in this life is somehow under His divine control, under His jurisdiction. So a, a desire to control things, to, to manipulate the outcome of specific circumstances is really a desire to be omnipotent, to seat ourselves upon God's throne and determine the results ourselves. You know, when we manipulate, we're really saying, look, God, I don't trust you enough to rest in your promises to me. Your love, your forgiveness, your peace, your sovereignty, your plan. So instead, I'm going to wrest control from you because I could do a better job at orchestrating my life. Please and thank you. Now, I have never heard anyone pray that prayer in exactly those terms. But it's our heart attitudes that are important, right? So that's the vertical problem. And problem number two is the horizontal problem in our relationships with other people. And, and here's the, the deal with manipulation. When we manipulate others, we treat people like things. We treat them like objects rather than image bearers of God for whom Jesus died. Family and friends just become pawns in our scheme to accomplish our goals our own personal quests for fulfillment and happiness and self-actualization. I don't know what that means, but everybody wants it. All the while giving them the impression that we care about them, but, but really sometimes they're just being used as a means to an end. There's this quote that summarizes this pretty well. It's kind of stark, but I think it's helpful. Man is the only animal that can remain on friendly terms with the victims he intends to eat until he eats them. Counter-argument, have you ever met a cat? But that's just me. In other words, human beings are the only ones with the capacity to manipulate. During Jesus' ministry, people asked him a lot of questions, right? This was kind of how he taught. He had this back and forth with people. And one of the most important questions they asked is, well, what is, what is the most important commandment in all of Scripture? What is most important? And Jesus answered them by saying what? He said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What does this tell us? Love and manipulation cannot coexist. You can't love someone and seek to manipulate them at the same time. Now, here is the wonderful thing 
about this book that I love and that we have been learning throughout this whole series, right? Even the most heinous, seemingly hopeless situations are redeemable by God and can be used for His greater purposes. So, so even in this story of Rebecca's manipulation, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Okay, you might ask, well, where is it? Because it's not immediately obvious, right? We see the sin problem, we see the diagnosis, we see all these terrible effects play out, but like, where's the cure? Where's the gospel answer, we might say? Well, to get there, we have to dig a little bit deeper. One thing we need to remember when we read our Bibles is that every story in here, we'll talk about this more when we go through this story, but every story in here, every Every book, every chapter, every verse is all about Jesus. That's the key to interpreting Scripture. And the way that we know that is because Jesus gives this principle to us Himself. This is Him speaking to His disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, 25 through 27. And He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Every story that we read points forward to Jesus in some way, shape, or form. So the story of Jacob and Esau, then, is also the story of Christ and his relationship to us. Like Jacob was clothed in the garments of his brother, we as believers are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. Like Jacob, we receive the blessing while our spiritual brother, Jesus, becomes cursed for our sake. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Talking about the crucifixion here. At the cross, Jesus became the cursed one on our behalf. And then 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become what? The righteousness of God. This is a, a two-way exchange that, that's happening here. We see it in this passage. We see it elsewhere. Is that Jesus takes on our sin. And we take on His perfection. That means when God looks at you and when God looks at me, He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He sees us as beloved, forgiven, child children of the Heavenly Father, all because of Christ. God works in surprising ways. Anybody agree with that statement? Yeah, a few of us. God has a long history of doing this. Theologians call this a theology of glory, excuse me, a theology of the cross as opposed to a theology of glory. And what a theology of the cross means is that God kind of works through opposites. 
He works through things that appear to be one thing at the time, but in his grander purposes, they turn out to be something different. And we see it in in our story today. God uses the wombs of barren rather than fertile women. He uses younger rather than the older sons. And ultimately, he uses the cross, this symbol of death and defeat, to bring about what? Eternal life and victory. See, through Jesus, God acts on our behalf to forgive our manipulative, controlling, sin-calloused hearts once and for all, casting our sin as far as the east is from the west. And He transforms us into people who rest in His promises alone rather than insisting on our own efforts. So here's the deal, friends. Here is the really good news for you and for me. Okay, if you remember one thing this morning, let it be this. The gospel gives us freedom to abdicate the throne of our hearts so that Jesus can inaugurate his loving rule. The gospel gives us the freedom to abdicate the throne of our own hearts so that Jesus can inaugurate his loving rule. Like Rebecca, we are sinners who daily fall short of God's standard and deserve eternal wrath and punishment. But God provides a way out, a way for us to be saved. As Paul says in Romans 6, 23, say this verse with me up on the screen here. Would you say this with me? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen to that. God can redeem you. You know that? He can redeem your life from the pit and give you an eternal hope. And let me just say this too. If you've been listening this morning and maybe your conscience is is a little bit pricked and you're wondering, man, was pastor in my kitchen last night? Like, how how did he know this about me? If that's you and you recognize your need for the forgiveness of a Savior, I encourage you right now to join with me in this short prayer. Heavenly Father, I am a sinner. Please forgive me. I trust in you alone for my salvation. Change me and make me more like you. Amen. Well, next week, we're going to continue our Broken Heroes series by talking about Peter and his struggles and yet how God used him in a powerful way to uh, help start the early church. So let's turn to the Lord in a word of prayer. Hey, friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's Pastor K-J-O-L-H-A-U-G at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen.